original. It's sort of like when you go to school and you have to create a paper about something you know a lot about or a little about, but you're not sure if it has any meaning. So you go and do research. Pretty soon your research comes out and then you create this paper and then you have to put all the footnotes and the bibliography in the back and all that kind of stuff. Well, today is kind of like one of those. Um, and there are four or five people that have really influenced my thoughts on this, my thoughts on missions. First I have to talk about is John Piper. He's influenced a lot of my thinking over the years. There's a book that he's written, it's called Think. If you have not read this book, uh, you do yourself a big favor by reading it. It's very dense. So if you want to uh, get together and have a uh, discussion about the book on a chapter-by-chapter -chapter basis or whatever, I'd love to do that with somebody. If not, even if you're in a, a small group, maybe you should take this book up and discuss it. It's um, something that may influence you. Hopefully it will influence you as much as it did me. But it does also be dense enough that you read a chapter and you need to think about it. Discuss it to find out what's really going on. And because of John Piper, also his other book, I Let the Nations Be Glad, has influenced this. And through John Piper, uh, of course, Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, and there's another guy, Eric Metastas, uh, wrote a biography of uh, Bonhoeffer, Peter Bonhoeffer. I'm, uh, according to my Kindle, I'm 67% of the way through it. stood for a lot of things and in his life he grew to appreciate God and who God is and learned to value God more than anything else. And a lot of what I'm putting forward today will be a reflection on some of what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life is. But today we're going to talk about missions, but before we can talk about missions, you know, a Piper statement or actually a Jonathan Edwards statement is, Missions is not the ultimate purpose of the church. Worship is. Think about that a minute. Missions is something that a church does. We are involved in missions. We have now three people that we are very much behind in missions. We have the, I think it's the Matthews, Dubai, that we support financially and pray for on a regular basis. We have the Masungas in Kenya that we pray for and uh, projects for and want to be very, are very involved with. We go there on mission trips and that type of thing. Then we have a new one, it's Don and Connie, who uh, are with GRN, that we are going to support financially on projects. We want to pray for on a regular basis. Hopefully your uh, small groups are praying for them as well. But we must understand that missions is what we are involved with, but that is not the goal of what we do. Worship is. And so to understand missions, we have to understand what worship is. So worship is first not an outward act, but an inner spiritual treasuring of the character of God in Christ. Worship is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. Remember that worship then becomes inside out. I'm going to use that term a little bit today, inside out, because 
And you can't do outside things to be worshiping. It has to come from within. So worship refers to is within before it can be worked out. The other thing about worship it is, is that it is also outside. So to be outside, it has to be an action. It has to be seen. You can't just worship inside and have great thoughts about God and call that worship. It is, but it's also part of what we do. And so by combining inside with outside in worship, it kind of gives us a blend of the fact that being a Christian is no longer passive. Being a Christian is active. And for the longest time in my life, I was a passive Christian. Because I thought the right thoughts. And that's the first step in worship. But we have to also do the right things. Alright. So, one of the frustrations that Jesus had with the Pharisees in Matthew 15, he said, they honor God with their lips, but their heart is in vain. So the action has to really come from the heart, not from the lips. The other thing that Jesus says is, let others see your good works and glorify God, giving you a purpose of deeds. But let's go to John 4 again. John 4 is a great missionary and evangelistic passage where Jesus talks to the woman at the well, but I'm not going to focus on that right now. What I'm going to focus on is in verse 16, Jesus says, uh, at verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that. You've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place for people all to worship. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem where you worship the Father. Think about that a minute. The old covenant, if you're a covenant theologian, or the dispensation of law, if you're a dispensationalist, had a place where people had to go to worship, nor to worship in the Old Testament. Yet go to Jerusalem. What did you do in Jerusalem? You create, you gave sacrifices. You gathered around and had feasts, festivals. You sang songs. You listened to the Old Testament, the, the uh, law being read to you, and the prophets. And that was your worship. And you did that in a particular place. So worship in the Old Covenant or the dispensation of law was place focused. Jesus rips that apart and says, neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain will you worship. So there is no longer a place that is needed to worship. So he rips apart the Old Testament idea of what worship was. This is new. This is innovative. This is different. This is what Jesus is doing in his life. Is Fulfilling the Old Testament and getting rid of the need for a place. But it's not just a place. Keep reading. We see that he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. 
was in a church once that said knowledge is not really necessary for a Christian to grow with communities just to come together, get together, and sing songs and listen to good preaching or just preaching. The preaching was mediocre. Sometimes it was great, but most of the time it was mediocre at best. And you say, and and that is what Christians need, is just fellowship of the believers. I disagreed with that, and eventually I was gone. Because there is that fact that we have to know what we are doing. We have to know Christ. We have to know what the Bible says. So there is an inherent need on the part of the believer to have a knowledge of Christ and to have a knowledge of the Word of God. Because then he says, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Tease that out of a little bit what is truth. Truth is the Word of God. That is truth. True truth is the Word of God. The second thing is spirit. Spirit of God is in us, and we will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So it takes both knowledge of the Word of God and the Spirit to create worship. So He's ripped apart a form focus. In the Old Testament, you had to do certain things to be worshiping God. You had to bring your sacrifices. You had to sacrifice the lamb. We could get graphic here, but I'm not going to. You had to bring in your first fruits of whatever things you were growing in, because it's an agrarian culture they were in. You had to do things, bring them to Jerusalem, and do that. And there were certain rules that you had to follow. They were dictated by the Ten Commandments and by the other uh, things that they got from Moses and the prophets, and then they had their other forms that they <coughs> threw in there. So they, Jesus right here threw out the fact that no longer a form to worship. So when we have missions, we're not going there to teach him our way of gathering and singing our songs and listening to our way of preaching. That's not the point. Because if we do that, we are, what we're doing is creating our culture in their culture. We're not going there to set a different culture into a people group that we're not acquainted with. What we are going there is to teach them truth and to allow the Spirit to open their eyes. Their form of worship, their function in worship, may be different than ours, but they will be worshiping in spirit and in truth. And that is what missions is about. That's why I really appreciated Don's sharing with us last week, because what he is involved in is taking the verbal word to people groups that may not be large enough to spend the money on writing and creating an alphabet or translating the Bible in their group, but giving them a verbal word of the gospel of Christ into a language that they can understand and connect with so that they can hear Christ in their own words. So it's important that we realize that in worship, it's not place-focused, it's not form-focused, not dictated by rules. So the liturgy that we put together every week 
is not worship. And I know it's hard to get, it was hard for me to get my hand, my arms around this, but worship is something different. Now, the word for worship in the Old Testament is used and translated. There's a Hebrew word that means bow down. There's a Greek word that translates the same type of thing, and it's worship is bow down. And so when you read worship in the Old Testament, you read about people bowing down. That's the form. And in the Old, New Testament, it's only used in two places. It's used in the Gospels, where people bow at Jesus' feet and worship him. So that's bow down. And it's used in Revelation, where, you, where we peek into heaven at various times, and people are bowing down and worshiping the Lamb, which is Christ. So in the New Testament... It's, when you do a word study, it's not only what you see in the word, but sometimes there's an argument from silence. And I know argument from silence is a weak argument, but at the same time, it's an argument and a point that needs to be made. In the epistles, the word for bow down and worship is drastically missing. There's no rules or regulations or anything in the epistles about worship. About that. We are here as a church, and one of our goals is to create white hot worshipers for Christ. And the goal of mission, missions is to create white hot worshipers of God. But in the epistles, there's no mention of worship at all. And when you think about that, it's like, how can this be a goal and not even be mentioned by Paul? James, or Peter, or Jude, or the other. I think there's some, but it's it's like they're not talking about worship. So how does that all fit together? Because worship then is not a song service. Now I know in our culture we like to say we have a worship leader. Well, usually the worship leader turns out to be a song leader that we've just given them the title of. And it's not listening to preaching. Um, there are a lot of preachers on the air. They're a lot better than me. Uh, Lee does a great job preaching, but that's not worship. Listening to us preach is not worship. Worship is not just being gathered together right here. That's not worship. And worship is not necessarily always outward. In fact, like I said before, it starts inward and it goes there, but... Also remember, though, these things that I'm talking about that are not worship can assist us in worship. And what we are trying to do when we gather like this is to assist you in your worship of God. So worship is, then, an inner spirit of the heart to treasure God above all the treasures of the world. I'm going to repeat that again because... This is a hard one to grasp because I've had in my life a lot of things that I treasure. And they are nothing compared to what Christ is. And we need to measure Christ above this. For instance, well, let me repeat that verse. Worship is an inner stirring of the heart to treasure God above all the treasures of the world. What do you treasure? I treasured photography. I treasured family, I treasured my wife, I treasured a lot of things. But there's a, a couple of parables that Jesus uses to 
underscore what we are to treasure. One of them is in Matthew 13 44. It's just one verse long, but it's the treasure treasure. It's the parable of the treasure in the field. Where a guy comes along in the field and he sees this beautiful, this treasure, and he reburies it and sells everything he has. Everything he has. He sells his cows, his donkeys, his for us, it would be selling my house, my car, my cameras, my everything. Take on all the money I have and go and buy this field. Because this treasure is more valuable than anything I have. The other parable is in uh, Matthew 13, 45. It's just right after that. It's where this pearl of great value, where a guy sees, he's a pearl guy, he's a jeweler, and he sees this pearl that is perfect and largest pearl he's ever seen in his life. And he sells everything he has. His whole inventory in his store. He gets rid of it all and takes the money and buys the one pearl because it is so valuable that he treasures it above everything else. Do I treasure God Christ that way? Proverbs, it says, if, if you seek it like silver, you will find the knowledge of God. So if our desire, our purpose, our pursuit is in the knowledge of God, which will lead us to worship God, aided with the Spirit. So our worship has to come from inside out. We have to know Him of God is greater than the pursuit of any other kind of knowledge. So the second thing I want to talk about worship is it's the right affections of the heart toward God rooted in the right thoughts in the head about God becoming right actions of the body reflecting God. Now, Piper's kind of deep when he sees it says this kind of thing so I have to say it again because you can't always get it on the first statement. The right affections of the heart toward God, rooted in the right thoughts in the head about God, becoming right actions of the body reflecting God. See how it's inside out? So when we say that, we have to realize that Jesus is not just a sin forgiver. He paid the price for our sins and he is able to forgive us our sins. But he's not just a sin forgiver. So we can't don't value him just because he forgave our sins. He's not just a rescuer from hell. Though we like to be living pain-free and we like to be rescued from hell. He's not just that. He's not just a healer. We all have aches and pains and we want them to go away, but that's not what Christ is all about. He's not just a healer. He's not just a protector. I pray for the protection of my family constantly, but that's not what he is just about. He's not just a prosperity giver. There's some prosperity gospel out there that is doing a lot of damage. But it's because a lot of people love being wealthy and they want to take a shortcut getting there. But he's not just a prosperity giver. He's not just a creator. He's not just the Lord of history. He is all of those things and more. <coughs> to limit him to just one or two of these things 
we need to realize that we are limiting our knowledge of who God is and limiting our ability to worship. So we need to receive him as he is, more glorious, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying than anything else. Than anything else in the whole universe. So to embrace Jesus as the supreme treasure requires a new nature. To be born again, a new creature, spiritually alive. So what are the implications of this? First of all, the pursuit of God pursuit of joy in God is not optional. You know, Piper wrote a whole book about pursuing God, the joy in God. And I'm not even going to begin to con condense it here, but the pursuit of joy in God is not optional. That is our goal. That is what we live for. God is not optional with pursuing Him. Pursuing joy in God is not optional. The second thing is that saying the essence of worship is satisfaction in God is that worship now becomes radically God-centered, not self-centered. See, the problem a lot of times in worship is we feel we have to confess our sins, and that is true. We do should confess our sins. But it's not all about me. If we leave it there, it's not the fact that I did things wrong, but it's the fact that God gave them. So we have to shift the center of our worship from self to God, and that's very hard for us to do, at least it was for me, because I am a self-centered, focused, self-focused, selfish individual. I'm sure you're not as bad as I am, but at the same time, God has to be the center of our worship. So the essence of our worship is satisfaction in God. The second, third thing is this essence protects the primacy of worship by forcing us to come to terms that worship is an end in itself. See, when Piper said, or Edward said that the goal of missions is not, or the goal of church is not missions, what worship is. Worship then becomes the end in itself. It's not a side benefit. It's not a thing that we do on Sunday morning but it becomes the pursuit of the end in itself because we are valuing God above all else every day of our lives, every minute of our days. And our pursuit then becomes worship. So that's why Paul counts for the fact that, this accounts for the fact that Paul considers all life an expression of worship. When our life is consumed with pursuing satisfaction in God, everything we do highlights the value and worth of God. So everything becomes worship. And when this is missing, any of these four things are missing, there is no worship. No matter what form or expressions we, we present, there is no worship. So we get the God-centered pursuit where our whole life treasures God above all else and values it so much that then it becomes inside out. And then missions becomes the most natural thing as a result of worship. 
does that happen? Omniscience is the intertwining of the divine and human. God has ordained, for lack of a better term, that he uses people to spread the word of the gospel to other people. So the goal set before us is to see the worship experience happen among all the peoples of the world. Piper said something in one of these books that I read, I think it's Let the Nations Be Glad, that really has me thinking that Don is on the right track. Because the goal of missions is not to have a lot of people hear about Christ. The goal of missions is to have a lot of peoples hear about Christ. It's a play on words, I know. But peoples means nations or ethnic groups. Or so the goal of missions should be to have other peoples hear about Christ and turn them into white-hot worshipers and not be worried about form and function, but worried about how the inner thoughts and the inner desires of people is to value Christ above all else and treasure him above all else and become what Piper calls white hot worshippers of God. So the key verses that I wanted to look at in, in thinking about this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. Let's spend some time putting this in the context, and talk about missions now, because now I have an understanding of what I mean by worship. Now we want to talk about what I mean by missions, how missions is much more different than what I, as a person, as a young man, originally thought missions was. But missions, chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 7, I'm going to focus on verses six, 4 through 6 and then 7. Missions uh, can be based on this. I like this because in 2 Corinthians, Paul is basically given a defense of himself to the Corinthians. There's kind of a split between them and there's some misunderstandings. But Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said... Let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the glory of God in the face of Christ. But being a person who studies the word of God, whenever you see the word therefore, it always jumps out at me like a, a red flag. My father used to say, if you see it's a therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. So, a therefore is a term of conclusion. It means that Paul has said something, and this is a term of conclusion. What is Paul saying? 
And then he says, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God. What is this ministry? What is it there for? You have to go back to chapter 3. And verse 4 says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us confident, here it is, to be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter of, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the word ministry reflects all the way back there. So what is the ministry we have? That we are ministers of the new covenant. What is the new covenant? The New Testament. The thing that Jesus Christ set forward. It is the gospel. We are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. That Jesus Christ came to earth as God incarnate. Lived among men. Was crucified. Buried. And rose again the third day. And ascended into heaven. And seated at the right hand of God the Father purpose of all of this is so that we can be forgiven of our sins and live with God and Christ in heaven for all eternity. And as a sidebar, if Jesus was not in heaven, would you want to go there? That is why we have to treasure Christ above all else, because I don't care about all the other things that you've heard about heaven. They are nothing compared to the fact that Christ is there. So we are ministers of this covenant, but how does that work out? Verses 4 to 6. Verses 4, he talks about the gospel being veiled, because he compared it in the last part of chapter 3. Uh, Moses, when he was up on the mountain with God, his face shone, and he came down, and he veiled his face, so that people would not see the, the glory fading from his face, because his face was shining. It was glorious. He put a veil on it so people would not see that it was fading. So now he says, we, do, we now have uh, our faces unveiled. And in the case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when we spread the gospel untampered, unadulterated, unadjusted, on whatever else you want to put out there. We share the gospel. If people don't get it, it is because their eyes and their hearts have been blinded and their hearts are veiled. And this is why missions is an intertwining of the human and divine because we share the gospel and Christ lifts the veil so they see and they come know Christ, and it changes their lives. And that's what a testimony does. That is why we need to know the gospel. That is why we share the gospel in everything we do, because it has to ooze out of us. Because it's from the inside out, just like worship. If worship is not inside out, missions cannot be inside out. So all of the things that we can teach you about how to share your faith, and you may have heard it you're as old as I am, you've heard it ad nauseum, uh, about how to share your faith, how about the woman at the well, and how Christ 
used that as a way to share his, share who he was, and it's a great thing to study, and I don't want to minimize that. But techniques are just that. But when we share from the heart, we lose, we drop the techniques, and people can see the glory of Christ inside of us. So missions is inside out. So let's continue on. In verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, as Lord with ourselves, as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's that word knowledge again. Remember, we have to know Christ. And how do we know Christ? Knowing the, the New Testament. By knowing what he is, what he is about. And by knowing the New Testament, we also know the Old Testament, so we have to know Scripture. So, the glory of Christ is really there. You have to be blind to miss it. It is reasonable. And there are reasons to support it. I spent a few years of my life studying apologetics. And you can find arguments against the gospel. And you can argue against that. But when it really comes down to it, a person is not going to be reasoned into heaven. He's going to have to see the glory of Christ to get there. All right. So the decision, the decision ground of saving faith is God's gift of sight to the eyes of the heart. So how does people who don't know the gospel believe? They have their eyes open. How do their eyes get open? We're going to see in a little bit. We're going to make a little tiny comment about prayer. The eyes of the heart of unbelievers is opened through prayer. So we have to have a conscience, consistent, and working prayer life. We have to be praying for our believers, for our missionaries, for each other, that our faith will continue to grow. There's so much to pray for that sometimes if we don't pray, it's like running on empty. We, we don't have the power of God behind us because we're trying to do it on our own power. Prayer is important there, but we're going to get there. So saving faith is reasonable. Saving faith is from God's illumination. Saving faith is the glory of Christ seen through the facts of the gospel. Saving faith is the fact that the glory of Christ is really there. This is the only path of spiritual certainty. The other thing is that saving faith revolves around faith. Faith is necessary for salvation. And the question was asked, why faith? Why not love? Why does the grace of God... Those, why, is, why not... Um, the grace you have been saved through love instead of the grace of God through faith. Because faith is an act of receiving something. Faith is not something that you do something for. Faith is something you receive. And so humility is a part of faith. It's not a thing that we can do to increase our faith that God has not given us. We can increase our knowledge Faith is something that God gives us. 
So it has to be something that we receive. And it's also something that once we receive it, we know we have eternal life. That's why John says, I write these things that you will believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Again, knowledge is there. So missions is inside out, like worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the second commandment, or the first of the Ten Commandments. That's the consistency, that's the same thread in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So you have to know Christ. God glorifies himself towards his creatures by appealing to their understanding, again, the intertwining of the divine and human. He communicates himself to their heart and their rejoicing and delighting and enjoying a manifestation of which he makes himself. God is glorified not only by being seen, but by being rejoiced in. Piper says that so well. And those who see the light in God is more glorified than if they just see it. Mind and heart. So, we have to know it, we have to rejoice in it, and our hearts has to re really unite with it. Um, the gospel is not something that we just know, and when we share our faith, we just kind of mumble it out. If we're not rejoicing and excited about the faith that we have, that is not true gospel. That is not spirit-led gospel. If we are not exuberant, one thing I loved about Don's show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are the jars of clay. What, what happens to a jar of clay when you have something valuable and shiny? It comes out of it. Keep that in mind because I'm going to get back to that little illustration here in a little bit. But the purpose of prayer in missions, because prayer is connected to missions, so I'm trying to connect these things together. I'm going to do so quickly here and not say spending much time. But the purpose of prayer with mission is to make clear to all the participants in missions that victory belongs to the Lord. So missions is a result of worship, and it's fueled by prayer. If we are not praying, how can we acknowledge that God is involved? If missions is dependent on my efforts alone, it will fail miserably. And if it's not supported by prayer by myself and by people that I'm acquainted with, and we are not praying for each other, missions will fail. So prayer is God's appointed means by bringing grace to the world and glory to himself. With that in mind, we can, we can quote Old Testament Psalms that says, Call on me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Deliverance from trouble is to glorify God. John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, when you ask for something from God, the purpose is not for me to live easier, but it's so that God can be glorified. We attach suffering to this as well. Suffering is, for the sake of suffering, accomplishes nothing. If we are suffering, and we are glorying in the fact that we are suffering, we accomplish nothing at all. Loss and suffering, joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God, shows the supremacy of God's glory more clearly to the world than all the worship and prayer. I don't say that lightly. I know a little bit of what suffering is. Some of you know a lot more about suffering than I do. But suffering, for the sake of suffering, accomplished nothing but loss and suffering joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God shows the supremacy of God's glory more clearly to the world and in the world than all the worship and prayer put together. Our reaction to how we suffer can show forth the glory of God more than missions, than worship, and prayer. So therefore, God ordains that the mission of the church move forward not only by the fuel of worship and in the power of prayer, 